welcome to another episode of In Another Voice, a podcast about poets you might not have heard of and their poetry and translation. I'm Maria. And I'm Kyra. In this episode, we'll be talking about the Pakistani poet Faiz Ahmed Faiz, who wrote poetry in both Punjabi and Urdu throughout most of the 20th century. Just this past February, we celebrated the 110th anniversary of his birthday. He's hugely famous throughout the Indian subcontinent. His poetry deals with universal themes applicable to many political situations, both at the time he was writing and now. Because his writing was apt to be censored, he often hid the meanings of his poems in religious vocabulary, which has led to misunderstanding and controversy. For example, the poem we'll be listening to shortly, Hamda Kengir, or We Shall See, as our translator has translated it, has at times been interpreted as anti-Hindu because it draws so heavily on Islamic imagery. A very popular Nazim, a type of poem central to Urdu poetry, Hamda Kenge was written in 1979 and has reached iconic status, having been recited and sung in socio-political movements. We'll get into all of that later with our guest, the incredible writer, critic, and literary historian, Dr. Rakshanda Jalil. हम देखेंगे, we shall see. लाज़म है कि सच हम भी देखेंगे, we shall see. वो दिन कि जिसका वादा है, that promised dawn, जो लोहे अज़ल में लिखा है, etched on the slate of eternity. हम देखेंगे. जब ज़ुल्म और सितम के कोहे गरा, when the crashing mountain of tyranny will blow away like cotton wool, रूही की तरह उड़ जाएंगे. When underneath the feet of the enslaved, this earth's beating heart shall tremble and shake. When the lightning will strike down those who lord over us, when from the house of Allah all false gods shall be cast off. We, the faithful, the dispossessed, will rise to a state of sovereignty. Each crown knocked off will go. Each throne brought down will go. Only Allah's name will reverberate. He who is the seen and the unseen, the spectacle and the witness, and the cry of the West. I am the truth. And that is me. And that is me. And that is you. And that is you. Now, now the children, the children of, God of God will rule. And that is me. And that is you. That was Hamdi Kenge. And now we'll talk to Dr. Rakshanda Jalil, who we asked to introduce herself. Okay, my name is uh, Rakshanda Jalil. I'm a literary historian, a writer, and a translator, and I live in Delhi. Um, I look at contexts rather than texts. I am interested in texts as a student of literature, but over the years, what is of 
greater interest to me is the context in which a particular text is written. So um, Fares, for example, and the particular poem that we will be looking at today, uh, I am interested in, in it as a piece of literature, but I'm equally interested in why it was written and how it came to be written. What, who was Fares Ahmed Faiz? Who was he? When was he writing? What was his context? Okay, very briefly, uh, he's born uh, in Sialkot, a city in present-day Pakistan, on 13th of February in uh, 1911. He's born to a family, an educated, uh, once well-to-do family, but now in somewhat straitened circumstances. So Fares was sent to Murray College, uh, incidentally, a college set up by the Church of England. Mm, sorry, the Church of Scotland, I'm sorry. And then he went on to something which was a bit of a iconic college in Pakistan of that time, the government college in Lahore, where he studied Arabic and English and philosophy. So uh, the government college Lahore of that time is, uh, is, uh, is a place where affairs is going to sit very deeply from um, not just literature, but a whole way of life. And then uh, just as soon as he finishes his master's, he goes to take up a job, interestingly enough, teaching English at the MAO College in Amritsar. Amritsar is a, was then a twin city of Lahore, just about 30 odd kilometers away from Lahore. And uh, Amritsar will have a lasting influence on his life because it is at Amritsar that, uh, that Fares is going to meet a totally different kind of uh, set of people. It is here that he will meet uh, comrade Mahmoud Zafar, who is the vice principal of the MAO College. It is here in Amritsar that he will meet comrade Mahmoud Zafar's wife, comrade uh, Dr. Rashid Jahan. Uh, it is here that he will meet Sajjad Zahir. It is here in the house of uh, Rashid Jahan and Mahmoud Zafar that he will uh, read the Communist Manifesto for the very first time. And uh, these are influences that are going to leave an impact on the kind of poetry he is going to write. You wrote on the anniversary of his 110th birthday, you wrote an article about he spoke of and for the oppressed. And I was just wondering contextually what, what you mean by that, what was, what was happening there? Who were the oppressed that he was speaking for, especially with this poem that heard um, Hamdi Kenge. Right. Now, uh, the subcontinent India and Pakistan uh, gained independence in 1947. Uh, his first collection is published in 41. Uh, he is active as a poet in all the years leading up to 47. So in all of the poetry that is being written in these eight, ten years, and even for, uh, the first collection is not produced overnight, it contains poems written over a period of ten years. So let's say in a poetic career spanning at the very least 17, 18 years, he is talking about nationalism. He is making common cause with all the big isms of the time, which is anti-colonialism colonialism, anti-fascism, anti-imperialism. He's talking for nationalism. He's talking for feminism. He's talking for um, things that uh, are gradually finding a place in Urdu poetry. I'm not saying he's the only one doing all of these things. He's part of a literary grouping, the Progressive Writers Association, which, which believe that the writer's job is not just to look inwards and to talk of his own um, his own aches and pains and sorrows, but to talk of the world at large. So he is talking of the people, for the people, people who are oppressed uh, by, for example, uh, 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 
fascism, imperialism, of ha having to live under uh, a, a foreign yoke. I have in mind a poem like Bol, Bol ke lab azad hai tere, Bol zuba ab tak teri hai, which means speak up, speak because your tongue is still free. Speak up because your body is still nimble and agile. So there are these poems where he's talking about, he's urging people to rise up um you know in in in, in rebellion and revolt um fares too is talking about farm workers about factory workers about laborers about um, uh, people who have been oppressed in different ways and in the years after um, from let's say 47 till the early 50s he is going to then make common cause with oppressed a people elsewhere. I mean, there is a great awakening happening in the Afro-Asian countries. So he's going to talk about, uh, in a poem like Ajao Africa, he's going to talk about uh, making common cause with the African brother. He's going to talk about other countries which are still waiting to, as it were, shed the yoke of imperialism, right? Uh, in uh, 53, he's going to talk about the Rosenberg trial. Uh, so he's going to talk about oppression of all kinds. Of course, in the years up till 47, he's going to speak in the context of the subcontinent, and he's going to speak specifically of, of anti-imperialism. But uh, in later years, he'll talk about forms of oppression, which could be varied. It could be the, the, the harassment and the singling out of the communists in America. That, uh, and that is my context, you know, that is why uh, someone like me is very interested in the context that you need to understand why this was being written, when was this written, what was the year, what was happening in 53, how did this come to be written. And so uh, that is the interesting thing. And, and Faz also gives reasons why he had to evade censorship. He's in prison and he's writing about these things. He's writing about things that will be seen as, as deeply subversive by those who have kept him cap captivity. And even once he's out of prison, he will be uh, uh, his, his own government, his own country is keeping a very sharp eye out for what he's writing. So he has to find ways and means to be accessible and yet evolve a very complex system of, of um, uh, com complex vocabulary, you know, through which he's trying to say things that are actually subversive, but may on the surface seem benign. We'll get into the language a bit more um, a bit later, but I just wanted for listeners who don't know anything about him, you mentioned that he was in prison. Why, why was he in prison? Okay, there was uh, something called the Rawalpindi conspiracy case. Um, this is when uh, he and 11 others are charged with sedition and they are they were only talking about it. It's a bit like what's happening to us in India. Something very similar here. Somebody uses the word toolkit, a very young woman from Bangalore and she uh, a sedition case is slapped. Uh, against her. So when governments are jittery, uh, these things happen. And uh, so there is, there are these 11 people uh, in Pakistan talking of overthrowing the military government. Of course, they don't have very concrete plans, but on, on somewhat flimsy charges, these people are just put in prison where they stay for the next uh, several years. And um, two remarkable collections of poem come, poems uh, come out of those years of incarceration. And um, 
in fact, Fez uh, looks at uh, looks back at those years in captivity as as a mixed blessing. Of course, he's away from his wife and his children, and he's living in very harsh conditions. But he calls those two collections of poems that come out as a tribute to captivity. Those years where, uh, while it takes for the government and for his own defense counsels to work out that actually there was no no real conspiracy, there was there were no tangible charges that can be pinned on these men. Uh, and one woman who are um, who are charged with this, uh, they eventually uh, let go. Um, they're released from prison. Uh, but those years um, will have an impact on his poetry because he learns, he evolves a, 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 a set of images which come from the experience of being in prison. Uh, salib, which is actually a word for the crucifix, but is also used for the bars of a prison, right? the cross-shaped bars that you have in a, in a prison. So it could just as well be the, the, the cross on which Christ was crucified for speaking up the truth. It could just as well be the, the actual physical crosses of a bar in a prison. So the word salib, for example, uh, recurs in these poems. Uh, so you have uh, motives that are plucked from the everyday experience uh, of seeing moonlight through bars of um, just catching a glimpse of a sky you know um, the, the 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 tangible physical experience of being in a prison finds its way into his poetry uh, written during those years and and how it the other important thing is that this is not just woebegone poetry about a man in prison it is actually poetry which is harnessing those experiences that are directly related to 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 the to the physical experience of being in a prison, but at the same time, this is poetry that rises above its time and circumstance and it speaks to you. So it makes the personal political in a sense that you have to read it to understand what I mean. When you say that it makes the personal political, do you think that that's one of the reasons why he, um, he has become so famous? So something that's interesting is maybe for Anglophone listeners is that he is such a famous poet on the sub, um, Indian subcontinent, but in England, he, we, we basically in the schools, we, we don't really learn about it. I had no idea who he was until Zahra like introduced him. Do you think that the reason he is so like well-known and became so um, successful is because of this like political life that he had, these controversies? Yeah, I think I think there are two reasons for this. Remember that uh, it's entirely possible that young people of your generation have not read his poetry, uh, and yet some of the finest translations of Fares are done by an Englishman, a man called Victor Keenan. Um, subsequently, uh, Ralph Russell, who taught at SOAS, also translated Fares and talked about Fares and wrote about Fares. So in the UK, I know for a fact, there was a whole generation of scholars who have in fact, brought affairs to English speaking audiences, uh, not just in the West, but to many of us in India, whose first encounters of affairs were through the English translations. So possibly I'm at the risk of sounding as an ageist, let me say that this might be a generational thing. In a case like Fares, it is often very difficult to separate the poet from his beliefs. So the personal is the political is truly something that runs deep in Fares' poetry. Uh, he mines his life to make larger political statements. I gave the example of the years in prison, but elsewhere too, of living, of living in Pakistan. So he uses, uh, he uses conventional 
um, uh, tropes and images and metaphors that have been time-honored and are taken as unquestioned uh, and used time and time and time again in Urdu poetry over several hundred years, actually. But he infuses them within, to use a modern expression, he infuses them with a certain agency, right? So let's say, for example, the street of scorn was a traditional metaphor for the wrong side of the street in a city, which is a prostitute's quarter, let's say, for example. Uh, but in Fares' poetry, the street of scorn becomes any street anywhere in Pakistan. Why? Because anywhere we live today, he's trying to say, is the street of scorn. Who knows who may point a finger at you and say you are this, that, the other. In India, he's immensely singable, right? Uh, his poetry is extremely musical. It has been set to music and sung by some of the finest singers over the past 30, 40, 50 years. And the music, uh, um, we used to have these uh, tapes, you know, in my growing up years, for instance, those cassette tapes. Um, they were smuggled in often from abroad, certainly from across the border from Pakistan. And for a great many people who may not have understood Fares' poetry line by line, word by word, there was something in it that was so pleasing to the ear, is the sheer musicality of it, which made him so popular. So despite the many border uh, animosities and the, the politics between India and Pakistan, uh, somehow music has managed to find its way across the border. And the fact that uh, fairs has been sung and heard by millions on both sides of the border is also in no small measure a reason for his popularity. And then he find, keeps finding new, re, new uh, audiences. So something that, for example, was written in the context of the martial law regime and the, um, the oppressions of General Ziaul Haq's dictator, uh, dictatorial years um, in the early 80s would be, to give you very random examples from India, would be um, recited by university teachers sitting on a strike or factory workers of the Hero Honda uh, motorcycle factory sitting on strike against the management. And yet they find common cause in his poetry. So of course it was the musicality. Of course it was the fact that music is a kind of an aid to memory and uh, uh, many people could recite it without knowing exactly what it meant. But it keeps finding new causes. It keeps finding new audiences. So. I think that is the test of good poetry. It rises above its time and circumstance and it continues to speak to you. So it may have been written for, uh, against um, uh, um, um, the martial law imposed by General Zia, but because he's neither taking the general's name nor referring to anything specific, but he's talking about tyranny and oppression and tyranny and oppression, unfortunately, um, never go out of fashion. They, they, they remain in one form or the other. And that's a huge part of Hamdi Kenge, obviously. Um, could you tell us a little bit about how you interpret that poem? I think, I think to come back to what we started, the whole business of relevance and continued popularity and why it means something, why it speaks to us. I think what is there in this that will that cannot not speak. You know, the idea is a very heartwarming one that one day tyranny will go away, the oppressors will be removed, will be vanquished, and the just and the good will one day rise. I mean, from the Bible onwards, we've been hearing this, that, you know, you will inherit this earth. So this is an idea that appeals to 
to, to, to something deep down inside us. And that is exactly what this poem is saying. And the fact that it's coming from a man behind prison who is knowing every form of hardship, he's saying this, this time will end. And we shall see, you and I. So the idea of making common cause, of, of saying that, you know, we'll be there, we'll be there. Of course, uh, the, the sweet irony of it all is that, um, and Zehra and others from, the, from India would understand the sweet irony of this, that people have always talked of Achedin. Uh, Achedin as in good days. It's become a political um, um, uh, slogan virtually. So the idea of good days, good days that are just round the corner, uh, is used both by the polemicist, by the politician, by the, by the poet, by everybody here, except that it's, 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 um, it's, it's reaching out to people to say, you know, those days are going to be there. Why? Because it has been promised to us. And yes, it is being couched in a language that seems religious in nature, but the message is actually extremely egalitarian. The message is very socialist. It's a Marxist message that the, 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 the oppressors will be vanquished and the oppressed will rise up. You see? I, I'm, this is my last question before I hand you over to Sarah. With Hamdi Kenge, obviously Coke Studio, it's obviously it's this huge well-known song, well, poem, but has been made into a song over the years. Um, not far wrong, actually, uh, you know, because this is a nazm. It is not a ghazal, which is a two-line thing. So it's okay to call it a song. And it's also okay to call it a song because it, it uses a kind of an internal rhyme. It uses, it, it relies a lot upon the music of words. So um, please do call it a song. It's okay. Cool. Good. Okay. So, so this song, um, Coke Studios did a version of it. And I wanted to maybe get into some controversial territory here in the obviously in Hamna Kenge there is this one line that has been the, well these couple of lines um which has been at the center of this storm when from the house of Allah all false gods shall be cast off people have said that that's anti-Hindu yeah. rhetoric um yeah. and obviously we're going to get into that later um but I just wondered what you thought about Coke Studios omission of that part of the song when they did it no, that's just playing it safe for no reason. And I, I don't think you, uh, I, I really think uh, Fez's family ought to have protested more vigorously and Fez's uh, uh, admirers and lovers ought to have protested more vigorously because we are playing into the hands of the right wing. And the right wing, uh, the world over, is ignorant and illiterate and uh, they seldom read. Uh, they seldom know the context. They seldom bother to find out the context. So um, when uh, Hamde Kinge became such a rage and it was being sung, and by the way, it was uh, translated into so many languages uh, just about this time last year, January, February of 2020, when it was, uh, it, it started from December, I think, and it was being sung across the country, wherever protest sites had uh, sprung up and people would translate it into Bangla, people would find their own versions of it, people would strum a guitar and sing it along. Many were people who had not really read it or heard it before or maybe had a vague idea of what it meant. So people kept finding new meanings. But the right wing, as right wings usually do, they uh, chose to give it a very narrow sectarian uh, interpretation. Now, uh, there are two ways to understand this. Um, just a few months before Fez himself died, uh, he addressed the Asian study group. 
And he explained that in the years that he was in captivity, he evolved a very elaborate way of uh, a vocabulary uh, set of images to avoid detection. Um, the idea was to use words which seem benign. Of course, he invested, uh, we've talked about this a little while ago, how he invested these existing tropes, existing metaphors with a new agency. Uh, but he, I think, was also consciously using words that seem not just benign, but would meet the approval of those who were vetting uh, each piece that he wrote. Uh, often he was not, he didn't have a piece of paper. So um, uh, when pen and paper were taken away from him, he very famously wrote this uh, share, which said, I have uh, dipped my fingers in my heart's blood. What need do I have for pen and paper? for pen and tablet, I said, he said, I think. So to come back to this, he evolved a way of writing um, four line quatrains, which he would remember. And then later when he had access to writing material, he would write it down. So the musicality, the, the hummability, the rhyme, all of this was also so that he would remember it. And when he had the chance, he, he could write it all down. That was one thing. The other thing, this, this line that has cause such offense to so many people. It is not about pan-Islamism. It is not about we're going to throw out the kafirs, we're going to throw away the idols from the, the haram and we will establish pan-Islamism. Very far from it. It is a metaphorical way of saying that, you know, we will, the who are the idols? The idols are of the, those who are powerful, those who want to be worshipped. So it is not in a religious sense at all. I mean, back then when it was written, it was clearly about the general who was a very powerful figure. And he's saying all of these powerful figures that have taken the place of idols in our times will be thrown out. And it is the people who will rise in power and take their the place that is their due. So actually, it's a very Marxist poem. It's talking about the power of the people. It's talking about the power of the people to rise up in revolution and revolt and to throw away all of these things and how those things that seem like uh, solid and substantial like mountains will fly away like uh, wisps of cotton. So, you know, it is, it is a very narrow, very sectarian, very limited reading of a poem. And it's such a pity that people choose to excise that in order to be politically correct. I think that's a really good time to hand over to Zehra. So yes. Zehra Kazmi has translated um, Hamda Kenge for us. So she's going to ask some questions about and talk about her translation process. Thanks, Kyra. Dr. Jalil, you've already covered so much ground in the course of this interview till now. Um, but I, I kind of wanted to discuss how, that it was indeed intimidating to translate a poem that is so iconic in the subcontinent. And furthermore, during the process, I felt like I was unable to, say, capture the onomatopoeia of lines like dharti, dhar, dhar, dharkegi. This earth's beating heart shall tremble and, and shake. Most English translations of the poem end up coming off as feeling a lot more sparse than uh, the vividness of the original. Yeah, onomatopoeia is one of the hardest things to capture, maybe in, uh, in, in sister languages like Hindi and Urdu, uh, you can do very much, but uh, you know, the, the rhythms of Urdu and English are very, very different. Very, very seldom, very occasionally, are you able to uh, come close to both. I think uh, in the very act of translation, a loss is inevitable. 
uh, I don't subscribe to the theory that uh, uh, that um, uh, you know you can match the equal. I frankly don't. In all of these years that I've been translating, be it prose, be it poetry, I think I work from a or start from a position of inevitability of accepting that there will be loss. Having said that, uh, it would be, be a, our world would be a poorer place if we didn't have translations. Imagine we would have been mehroom, we would have been bereft of so much that the world has to offer and world literatures have to offer. And so Zera, I don't think one should be daunted by the loss. The loss is a challenge. Uh, and we once you've accepted that there will be the example you gave, dhada, 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 or, you know, the, the sound, the onomatopoeia, which you cannot approximate. So we are not here to uh, do a mathematical equation and we must have it equal on both sides of the equal sign. That's not translation and that certainly is not uh, translating poetry, you know. Thank you. Thank you so much, Dr. Jalilia. That's, I think that's, that's true. That makes me feel, feel a bit better. Um, another question I had was that, um, and this is, uh, you know, uh, thinking about uh, the, the musicality of Fez's poetry is also because he was himself kind of remembering it uh, via kind of, um, uh, just it, it was oral for him very often and he would kind of then piece it together when he had access to pen and paper, which probably explains uh, his also massive popularity in, in other languages, as you mentioned, and, and, in, and in terms of music. So this, but beside this, what do you think sets Fez apart uh, in terms of his linguistic innovation, his poetic innovation? What about his language do you think is, is, is so unique? I want to talk about two things here. One is the use of Zafat. Now, those who don't know, Zafat is the use of a hyphen to make complex words. So it could be simple like Bangidara, uh, Shabo Rose. So just the use of one, uh, conjoining two words, right? It could be complex using many, many words with hyphens to make complex uh, coinages, which have actually never been used. So they could be very distinctive to a poet. Uh, and uh, this is, is, is radically new. The other thing I want to talk very briefly in the context of, uh, of, of uh, Faz's poetry is the use of words that have always existed in Urdu poetry because they have come to Urdu from Persian. The word Laila has always been used. Laila is the, is the beloved. But to say Lailao Vatan, which means the beloved that is in this country, these are new. Mashok, which is the beloved, has has always existed. I mean, 300 years, the, the Urdu poet has been talking about the Ashik and the Mashuk. But what is Fez doing? He is making Ashik not just, he's not just using it for the lover or a, a lover anywhere, but he's using it for the patriot. He's using Ishq as in love, but love for the country. He's using uh, Hijr. Or, and these are all tropes that have been there forever. I mean, they, you, you don't think twice. But when you read them in Fez, you do think twice. Because you know that when he's saying Hijr or Firaq, which means separation, he's not talking about the lover's separation. He's talking about the, the, the oppressed in a particular state. Or when he's talking about Sharab, again, a very, very popular trope, Sharab or Mehkhana or Piala or Saki which means the wine or the tavern or the cup or the cup bearer, he's suddenly using them as sources of social awareness. Now, who would have thought that the cup or the piala is actually, when he's using it here, he's talking about 
a, a kind of a awareness about society and all its ills or he's using khirab which is empirical knowledge but he's actually using it for capitalism or he's using it as forces that are for the establishment or mujahid which is a fighter but here he's talking about a freedom fighter this is a vocabulary that is there that has that is there at a ready recall which both he and his listener his readers are familiar with except that he is doing something radical with it and because he's doing it consistently over a period of time we see a over that is spread over all of these uh, uh, many volumes of poetry and we see a repeated use of these words that we understand that when he's saying bulbul he doesn't mean that just the nightingale but he means the poet who who's feeling trapped or when he's saying bagban he doesn't mean the gardener in the literal sense but he just means somebody who has usurped um, the system you know so by repeated use of time honored tropes and metaphors and images and similes he's actually uh, giving us something new so it's like pouring new wine in an old bottle in a sense that's that's fantastic i was also thinking that we we do have some of these i, I mean the listeners they might they might know as well like they might have heard something of like to to think about isafat in english it's um, almost you know if it's a willow this or a jack o lantern where uh, the o almost becomes an apostrophe o and these different words are combined together with a hyphenated o apostrophe which you sometimes see uh, in english uh, occasionally uh, but but yeah that could uh, yeah, i was so i was thinking that there is perhaps a parallel there as well so i just just to finish uh, the interview off um i always ask this with everyone um and maybe it's not so relevant here because as you say phase is is much more well known than maybe i initially thought but um what do you wish people knew about him what do i wish well i wish people um understood the message and i wish uh, more people had written to cox studio asking them not to excise because um you know uh, this is the worst kind of censorship uh, the self censorship that we inflict the status quo that we want to maintain uh, and affairs is constantly urging us to rise up against the status quo so um i think uh, and it seems such a terrible contradiction in terms to to recite a poem such as this and yet to take out bits and pieces of it you know it's like some people who say that you know um oh i love i love the past i like history but i don't like this about history i don't like that about history so let me knock out this and let me knock out that you can't do that i mean history is a continuum it's a river you take all of it or you take none of it so also with poetry i don't think you can uh, you can do that kind of uh, you know you, you can't pull out things and say okay this bit doesn't make sense so i'm going to knock it out no that that's not something you do to poetry We hope you enjoyed this episode of In Another Voice. If you'd like to see a transcript of Hamda Kenge in the original Urdu or our translation, head to our website inanothervoicepodcast.com. We want to thank Dr. Jalil for talking to us. Dr. Jalil has written countless books and articles of literary criticism and translation. We've linked her recent article in honor of Fez Ahmed Fez's 110th birthday on our website. The voices you had reading the poem were Shaista Ghazali, Raj Shekhar Sen, Sajia Bhati, Tania Hassan, Nia Babur, Satyavama Rajoria, Malika Balakrishnan, and Zehra Kazmi. The sound design was by Kyra Ho and the theme music was by Maxence Fukuni.